and thanks Kendra and Ed and Aaron for leading us in worship this morning. It's just wonderful, wonderful. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, you know that uh, during the week uh, we struggle and strive and, and uh, sometimes fight and just try to get through. But today is the Sabbath that we stop <clears throat> and that we rest and we name our blessings. We rest knowing, Father, that as Paul says, we are already home with Christ in the heart of the Father. And we take time to thank you for your presence with us, for your sufficiency, for your blessings. And this morning we want to pray for the worldwide church, the house of God, as it opens its doors to those so many who are tired and, and weary. Father God, as millions of people gathered in your house to, to eat at your table today, may we be a family defined by kindness towards everyone. And, and Jesus, we pray for those who are lonely or on the margins today, and especially those who are attending church for the first time, maybe, or maybe for the last time. May they find themselves noticed and loved this morning. And for those who are nowhere near a church meeting today, send us out to bring prodigals home and that we can point the way to peace in being raised with you. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you revive your church today that you form us into the most welcoming, most diverse community on earth, that the world may see your love, believe your mercy, and receive your invitation. Father, we take a moment now to bring these big prayers now to the local level of our community. Father, we name those who, who might otherwise find themselves forgotten on the margins today in our community, in our church. And so, Father, we ask that you help us to dedicate the coming week to you in accepting your invitation that we offer him to those who are around us, and we offer you our hearts, and we offer you our home, that you make your home with us as we have made our home with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing on Colossians not Galatians, but Galatians just fits this passage so well that uh, I thought it would be great for Oscar to read it uh, this morning. Uh, like the, the, the world of faith, the community of faith, we kind of have our community of Christianity. We kind of have our own language, our language that resonates and reflects who we are, uh, what we think, and we all kind of know the words, know the language that we, we speak. But even in Christianity, you will find different words mean different things. You can go to uh, a Pentecostal church in East Texas and hear something, and it will be very different than the Episcopal church that's just down the street from our house, and it will be different than maybe a mega church that you might hear in Southern California. Uh, you hear, hear different things, I, and, and the words tend to come on with different meanings and different practices. Uh, if I just say the word uh, baptism... For some people, the term baptism draws an image of their mind of an infant in a long white gown uh, surrounded by family and godparents. For others, you have the image of an adult waist deep in a river. Uh, for some places, it may not even involve water. It's just a, a kind of a, uh, an emotional, ecstatic experience accompanied by speaking in tongues. And so we have all these languages that, and things that we don't really know, uh, and there's 
in our, in our, even in our own faith. And you even see an evolution of words, uh, words that have kind of fallen by the wayside and, and words that have sprung up. Uh, I doubt any of us in this room uh, have the same passion that Paul has for circumcision. Uh, he, he mentioned it in seven letters. You know, it was a big deal. But for us, it's really not that big a deal. It's not a thing that we really talk about. Uh, but other words kind of come up, like Trinity, for example. That didn't appear till 300 years down the line. Uh, there's the words like salvation and things like that, that and atonement that seem to, seem to fluctuate as time goes by. Uh, my dad... Pray every time he prayed, he always addressed God as thee and thou. Uh, we just don't do that much anymore. But there's one word that, um, that, I, that we kind of lose. And sometimes the people or uh, some preachers and some leaders will say, no, we need to reclaim these ancient words. And, and other people will say, no, those words have kind of gone by the wayside. We need to come up with new words. We need to come up with new ways to explain it. There's one word that I think we do need to reclaim, that we do need to go back and reclaim this ancient word, and that is sin. Uh, it's a word that um, sounds judgy. Uh, it's associated with guilt. And we kind of think, well, we kind of, the best solution with all that is maybe just not mention it. Let's just don't talk about it. Uh, because we want our worship experience to be a positive experience and not a negative experience. Uh, some churches bring the word back on Ash Wednesday once a year. Uh, we don't have an Ash Wednesday service, although we have talked about it, uh, talked about starting one. But what we do have is something that was uh, a tradition that started several years ago by Katie and Andrew, and that is a service of lament. And, uh, and yes, it, uh, I have received criticism from that. People have approached me after the service of lament that we do once a year during Lent and said it's a real downer, it's a real negative, and uh, it's not very positive. And my response, well, it's not supposed to be. Yeah. It's not supposed to be positive. It's something that we need to address. I don't think we should abandon that word because just because we don't talk about it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And it does exist. And it gives people a vocabulary. I, I know so many people who feel the undertow of this thing that is present in their life, and they don't have the language to talk about it. They don't know how to talk about it. They, they know that something's affecting them, that they've experienced a deformation instead of formation. They've experienced a, a death. They've experienced all kinds of of, of alienation because of this and they don't have the words to express it they don't have the words to explain it and if we get rid of that word then it also weakens the language of grace we talk about forgiveness but we don't really know what we're forgiven for and so it weakens all the language all the way around and so I, I really believe that we should uh, sort of recapture this this word in its right sense that it is something new. It leads us into something else. Now, if you were reading Colossians, as we're studying these days in our worship services, if you were to read Colossians and you stopped it at chapter 2, you would may get the idea that Paul was this libertarian that says, hey, you can do whatever you want because there are no rules. There are no recommendations. It's just it's a free-for-all. You know, he says, you know, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. He says those things don't work, you know, if you were to stop at chapter 2, 
you would say, no, that's, that's, there's no rules at all. But what Paul is getting at, what counts in chapter 2, is the new creation. Now, when you get to chapter 3, what counts in chapter 3 is the new creation. It's just that he comes at it from a different angle. He's coming at it from a different perspective, but it's still the new creation. And his point is this, is that Christians are to reflect God into the world, not reflect the world back onto itself. Christians are to reflect God into the world, not reflect, not just reflect the world back onto itself. And so we get to chapter 3, and we looked at the first four verses last week. We get to the, the beginning in, chap, in verse 5, and we see Paul with two commandments. Put to death and take off. Put something to death and take something off. And what these two commandments are, then the, these two commandments are then followed by a list of five things that we're supposed to either put to death or take off. And what he's doing here, he, this has become this image of baptism. And in the ancient church, that's, what they, that's how they baptized. I've mentioned this before. Baptism in the ancient church was done uh, by separated of the sexes. The men were baptized and the women were baptized. The reason for that is because they were baptized naked. Okay? And they were supposed to take off their old clothes and then they were baptized in the water, and then they were given this new, white, clean robe. And that whole picture has to do, this picture of dying to ourselves and being raised with Christ, as well as taking off old, dirty clothes and putting on new, clean ones. And that's what he's getting at here. And he's looking at two really pathological attitudes that destroy human beings. And you think, boy, this is back in Colossae, in the first century, but then you look at it and you go, well, yeah, that pretty well describes us too. Those two things pretty much describe our culture as well. And the first thing he says is we're to put to death something. He says, because you have been put to death in, in verses 1 through 4, therefore, remember the word therefore, whenever you see therefore, you ask what it's there for. Well, that's what, he's, that's what we're going to see in verses 5 through, through 11 but we're just going to look at 5 through 8 for right now. So then, or therefore, put to death whatever in your nature belongs on earth, on the earth, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. It's because of these things that God's wrath comes on the children of disobedience. You also lived that way once when your life consisted of that sort of thing. We see that verse, and right off the bat, we're thinking, what a killjoy, you know? Put together all those things. That's why I'm not a Christian, because you, you got so, you're, you're, you're supposed to, you know, turn down any kind of sexual enjoyment or anything like that. That's not what Paul's saying. You have to remember in Colossae and the, it, that they had a pagan, they had a whole pantheon of gods, and one of the biggest, strongest, most powerful god was a goddess, actually, called Aphrodite. And the center for Aphrodite's worship was in Corinth, which was close by to Colossae. And that's kind of spread throughout the Greek world. And she was the goddess of erotic love. And the attitude was like, hey, you know, she's the goddess. What are we going to do? You know, she's all powerful. We're supposed to do it. We get, you know, we're supposed to obey the goddess. That's what she tells us to do. She says, you know, worship me with sexual prostitution in the temple. That's what we have to do. Now, 
we hear the same thing, we just don't call it Aphrodite. We just say, hey, I'm just doing what comes natural. This is just natural. What do you, you know, you, you can put a cap on this? I can't, you know, I can't help myself. It's the powers that be. We don't call her Aphrodite, but it's the powers that be. There's, it's, it's, it's useless to resist. And the pagans used to look at the Jews and go, how does anybody live like that? And now they're looking at Christians and they're going, okay, you're one woman, one man. How do you, how do you people live like that? And Paul's saying, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to live. And so he goes with this list that kind of that, that, um, goes from the specific to the general. And we look at this list a little bit, and I think we'll understand a little bit more what Paul is getting at. First of all, he says, you know, put to death illicit sexual behavior. It was a common practice back then. It's a common practice now. And he says, put that, put that aside. Put that to death. That's... Um, that's not Aphrodite. There is no power out there that you cannot control. Impurity. That highlights the contamination of the character. That practicing illicit behavior sort of kind of damages and, 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 and contaminates the character. And then he says, put to death lust. This is the passion that, that controls us, that masters us, that we can't seem to do anything about. And then he says evil desires are this desire to be nurtured and cherished. He's not saying like Jesus said that, that this is not, that's not, that sexual temptation in and of itself is not sin. But like Jesus said, when you start nurturing it and when you start cherishing it and you start fantasizing about it, that's when it becomes dangerous. And then finally, he says, it's greed. Now, when we hear, hear the word greed... We think money and possessions. That word's used 10 times in the New Testament, and sometimes it is used for possessions and money. But oftentimes, even by Jesus himself in Mark 7, he includes it in this list in the sexual realm. And what he's getting at is this, that this covetousness, that's what he's getting at, that you take what you want just because you want it. And it can be money and it can be possessions, but here it's taking a person just because you want it. Just because you want it, you will exploit, you will control, you will manipulate, and you take somebody that doesn't belong to you. And he's saying that's what greed is. This is basically greed. And so that's what he's getting at here, is that just to think that you can take whatever person you want, regardless of whether they quote-unquote belong to you or not, that is idolatry, he says. It's taken that thing, that passion, that now takes the center place of God himself. That's what he's getting at. That the obsession is so strong that it now takes the place of God in your, etern in your internal life. And he says, these vices you need to put to death. Now, what does he mean by that? put to death it doesn't mean mortify the body you know you see the movies you know where the monks are, are you know whipping their back you know or, or you know even in, in some a lot of uh, Latin American cultures anyway you'll see them hit their chest you know mea culpa mea culpa mea culpa you know and do that self mortification that's not what he's talking about here he's saying these members these limbs that, that exist in the earth that's literally what it says that exist on the earth the, the preposition means on what he's saying that it has been enslaved to the systems of the world. 
And yeah, that's how the world operates. That I, I, can, I need to take whatever I, if I want it, I need to take it. If you have what I want, that's okay. I'm going to take it anyway. That's how the world operates. He says, put these things to death. He's not talking about mortifying yourself. And he's not talking about making these hedges around everything. You know, some people will read this and say, oh, I can never go see a movie. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not ever go, go to a movie. I'm never going to go to a theater or whatever. He's not talking about that either. Or some people will say, oh, I, you know, I, to avoid this, to put this to death, I'll never meet with a woman or meet with a, a person of the opposite sex, even though she's my coworker, or he's my coworker, or secretary or whatever. You know, stay away from that. I'll never be, you know, never have a, a girlfriend, a friend who is a woman or a friend who's a man. I'll never have that. Put that hedge around it. He's not talking about that either. For some people, maybe. What he's saying is, what I think he's saying is that every Christian has the responsibility to investigate what is causing that pull. And he says, cut the oxygen off. Cut off the supply line to whatever is causing you to move that way, to be mastered by this desire, to be consumed by this, to covet this, whatever it is, drain it suffocate it from, take the oxygen off, take the supply line off until it dies. I was with a couple of friends this past week at Freem, and one of them, the guy, his wife works at Freem, and so they get like $300 worth of beer every month. And uh, we were, at, I know, isn't that, isn't that incredible? And he says, I said, do you keep it in your house? You know, you have a lot in your house? He goes, no, I never keep it in the house. I never keep it in the house. He goes, because I would just get fat. And I said, well, that's the way I feel about Ritz crackers. It's a <laughs> you sent me down with a pizza of Ritz crackers and a jar of peanut butter or a hunk of cheese, and I can finish off a sleeve in 10 minutes, probably. <laughs> and so I don't keep it in the house. I really don't buy Ritz crackers in the house. That's what he's getting at. Cut off the supply line. And then so it starves, basically starves to death. And if that means not going to movies, well, that's fine. But what he's saying is just let it die. Let it go away. Cut off the supply line. And he says the reason for this, he says God's wrath is coming. And we, we have struggled with this too. And I, you could do a whole sermon series on the wrath of God. But let me mention this. Paul is not talking about some capricious or malicious anger of God. That he suddenly was, was ready with lightning bolts to throw at you. What he's talking about is, is love in reaction to, to injustice. When love meets injustice, there is wrath. And we wouldn't want God to be any other way, would we? When we, God sees exploitation, when God sees uh, people, men especially, I'm talking about men mainly uh, because that seems to be the majority, with power and control or authority and including in the church and they exploit that and women respond to that because they're fearful or because they respect or whatever and that man uses his authority for that, you're going to bet that you're going to see the wrath of God. That is God's anger meeting exploitation. God's anger meeting dehumanization and injustice. That's what he's getting at here. And that's what's coming. And 
it's kind of nebulous whether Paul is talking about in the future, a future judgment, or a current judgment. I think it's both. The verb is actually in the present tense, but the verb also implies something in the future. So I'm beginning to think that it's probably both. And you will see people that are sold out to this die. You can see it in their eyes. You can see it behind their eyes that they themselves are dying as they practice dehumanizing behavior and they become less and less and less human. You can see it in the eyes of the miser. You can see it in the eyes of the pimp. You can see it in the eyes of the torturer. They become less and less human. And this is what I think Paul is talking about. And he's saying, so leave that alone. Let it die. Cut off the supply line because you are to reflect God into the world, not reflect the world back on itself. We are supposed to be different. Now, I've seen churches up close who seem to be going really blowing and going, and then behind the scenes, the pastor's having an affair. I've also seen churches where things are really straight and narrow, button-down collars, but then there's groups gossiping, criticizing, angry, over here talking about this person or that person or that small group or that group or that person, and I've seen that happen in churches too. And that goes to the next list. So I think if there's two things that describe the culture at Colossae, this obsession with, with uh, sexual gratification and then anger, I'm thinking, hmm, that sounds a lot like us. Because the next one he deals with anger. But now put off such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth, and don't tell lies to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have been clothed with the new self that is being renewed in the image of the one who created it, bringing you into possession of new knowledge. And I think this new knowledge is the knowledge of good and evil, not from Genesis chapter 3, but this new creation. And what I think, what Paul is talking about here, this new knowledge is knowledge about us and knowledge about God. And this new knowledge, he says, we need to put off and become the new person. And this list also moves from specific to general. Anger, the state of smoldering and seething hatred. Then becomes rage, the state that breaks out with angry words and angry actions. Malice, the word here is basically just means evil, but in this context, I think Paul is talking about evil with the intent to do harm. Evil with wanting to hurt someone or destroy someone and crush someone. And filthy language, I don't think he's just talking about cuss words here. I think he's talking about language that dehumanizes or, or is trying to be abusive. I don't think he's just talking about normal, what we would call cuss words today. Uh, when we first moved to Mexico, we were meeting with the family that was supposed to be mentoring us. <clears throat> and I was telling some story and I used some word that is perfectly acceptable where I come from. No problem. It's an East Texas word that nobody, <laughs> that nobody ever gets any upset about. And so we get back to the house that, did you see Jamie's eyes when you said that? I go, no. <laughs> and sure enough, she asked him, and, and Jamie is going, yeah, we don't use that word around here. You know, it's like, okay, good to know. <laughs> Note to self, avoid that word. 
I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about language that really is trying to abuse and hurt uh, other people. And then finally he says the lies when truth needs bending. And when we feel threatened, truth needs bending. So in the first section, he says, you cannot just take whoever you want. And in the second section, he's saying, you cannot destroy anybody you want. Those two things you cannot do. You need to rid yourself from those things. And he goes on to say that these things do not happen. Your renewal, which your true self is, when God, when God redeems you, he gives you the true self, the way he created you. He says, these two things do not happen in a vacuum. It happens with other people. In that renewal, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. You can bet in a place like Colossae, where you have all these different people, slave and free, barbarians, Greeks, Jews, all in one place, you can bet that's a very fertile place for suspicion and prejudice and anger to build up. You can count on it. And he's saying, here, that doesn't exist. These vices of crushing do not exist. Those distinctions are irrelevant. The differences are real, just like when Paul was talking about in Galatians, about the, about the differences are real. There's no, there's, he's not wiping away differences between male and female, but he's just saying they are irrelevant when it comes to truth, when it comes to morality, when it comes to, to respect, and when it comes to honor, and when it comes to love. These distinctions are irrelevant that we treat each other with love and honor and respect regardless. Regardless of color, regardless of language, regardless of race. In this century, after Alexander the Greek, great, well, anybody Greek was, was wonderful. They were privileged class, and they looked down at the Jew because they had that super, super uh, silly superstition, you know, about the temple and all that stuff. The Jews, however, they thought they were superior because they know that they were elected by God and that they, they were to bring the Torah to the, to, the, to the... and they thought the pagan gods were shallow and immoral. The people who did not speak Greek, they were barbarians. The Scythians were the worst. And slave and free, that's kind of like our racial differences today. And he says those distinctions are irrelevant. And then he reaches the pinnacle, which I think is the pinnacle of the book itself. We've been going through chapter 1, chapter 2, until we reach the last part of verse 11. Christ is all and in all. And I think from here on out, he's going to talk about the implications and the ramification of Christ all and in all. I heard somebody say that the definition of a mature Christian is the person who sees Christ in everything. That's the definition of a mature believer. The one who sees Christ in everything. That is, the, that is the pinnacle. That the elderly person who is ignored means that Christ is ignored. The lively teenager who gets snubbed means that Christ is snubbed. The poor or the person of color or even the rich or the white person who gets treated with contempt, that disgrace falls on Christ. 
the person who is coveted and taken for just their own personal sexual gratification, that shame falls on Christ. Christ is all and in all. And he says we are fundamentally linked to each other. That your choices affect my choices, my choices affect your choices. There are things that we can't control. We can't control the color of our skin, our gender, the place we were born, the culture we were in, but we are all linked. And no matter what those factors are, we all do awful things because we are threatened at some point. We do awful things because we feel like that is necessary for our survival. And Paul is saying, you welcome and respect within the people of God. That should be, that should be the reflection that we put onto the world. That we cannot allow those prejudices from our past, our pre-Christian days, to, to infect the new person, distort the new human being. That as Christians, we are to reflect God into the world, not reflect the world back on itself. That's our job. Christ is all and in all. I mentioned that there was a word that needed to be redeemed, <clears throat> and that's sin. I think there's a, another word that uh, needs to be redeemed, and that's righteousness. Uh, we think of righteousness as self-righteousness, of superiority, of, of elevation, or something like that. But when you look at what true righteousness is out of this passage right here, you see it has nothing to do with that. It has with being our true self that is full of true life, that is life-giving, not life-extracting. That's what righteousness is, not superiority. And, I, and in a strange way, sin is our only hope. Because sin is like the fire alarm that wakes us up to the possibility of real righteousness. It sets off the alarms. I know it's my favorite parable. It's the favorite parable of many in this room, the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. Why is that such a favorite? Why is that such a wonderful story? It's a wonderful story because the younger son was guilty and he knew he was guilty. And that's what makes that kiss from the father so powerful. What makes the parable so sad is that the older son was guilty, but he didn't know it. That's what made it sad. You see, forgiveness is just the start. It's not the end. It's the start that we move on to be transformed. For, for many people, it's easier to feel remorse than it is to repent. We would rather just feel bad. I'd rather feel bad about the damage I caused than go get a cost for the estimate of repair. I'd rather just kind of waller in my, in my guilt than do the hard work of a new life. But Paul is saying that you are forgiven, but that is the starting gate the starting gate for transformation. We are built into this, this community. This salvation is not just this metaphysical prize that we win. It's offered in our bodies, and we are in this community of also repentant sinners. We are not a community of stainless steel people who don't get bent or broken. We are people who are repentant sinners 
who also know that the job, the work of transformation is never done while we're here on this earth. That's who we are. That's who we are. A repentant sinners who know that the work is never done. As people of God, we have been chosen to embody the gospel. We have been chosen to point people to home. We have been chosen to reflect God into the world, not to reflect the world just back on itself. It's very, very different. We are God's sign language in a sin-sick world. That's who we are. And we reflect the gospel. We reflect the home. We reflect God into the world, not reflect the world back on itself. So we talked about sin. Um, I'm going to give you a chance now to uh, practice that a little bit. We're going to take communion this morning. And I'm going to spend a few minutes, just a few seconds, and um, that we confess silently and just maybe look over the last week and uh, confess where we have fallen short and that we want to be a new life to reflect God's grace back into the world. So I'm going to read from Psalm 86 and then I'll pray and just spend a few minutes in silence. And then I'm going to ask the, some of the people, the helpers, to come out and help me uh, um, hand out communion. So it's from Psalm 86. Hear, O Lord, and answer me. For as rich as I may think I am, I confess that I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, Lord. For I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. And in their time of desperation and need, and hear my prayer, O Lord, listen to my cry, and have mercy. Father, we stand in your presence with all that we have, with all that we are, all of our fears all of our anxieties, our guilt and shame, our sexual fantasies, our greed and anger, our joys, successes, hopes and aspirations, our reflections, our dreams, mental wondering, in short, all that makes us who we are. With all this, we have to listen to your voice and allow you to speak to us. And we take these minutes just to confess our dependence on you and your mercy.